What up, everyone? Welcome back to the second episode of another progressive podcast. I'm the host, Max Deutsch. Thanks for tuning in. If this is uh, your second time watching or listening, thanks for coming back. If it's your first time, welcome. Just uh, one quick thing before I start. I just want to point out that last week I tried posting the source sheet with all my sources in the episode description. The link didn't really work. So from now on, I'm going to be putting my source sheet uh, with all the sources that I cite on Facebook and Twitter. So follow me, like uh, me, are my the page, another progressive podcast on both Facebook and Twitter. And you can make you can double check me, you can fact check me, or if you want to look into this, look into it yourself, you can you're able to do that. So now jumping right in to this topic, it's something that at first I thought, oh, maybe I'll do it in a couple weeks. I don't want to necessarily, this is not the most important issue to talk about right now. Once I started watching videos of these people talking about the Southern strategy, and I started researching the Southern strategy myself and realized quickly how wrong I believe they were, I realized that there actually are some pretty serious implications from from what, from the Southern strategy and their denial of it. I think off the bat, uh, there's some serious practical real-world implications for for this, for the Southern strategy, and I'm going to get to that at the end. But I also think that when we think about these figures, Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens and PragerU, how much credibility they have in the conservative movement, in the intellectual just sphere. I mean, Ben Shapiro is a New York Times bestselling author, but we see how how much of basic history they get wrong and how much they distort basic history and cherry pick things. To me, it really questions their cred- their credibility to talk about anything if they can't even get these basic things right. So I think for this show early on to just kind of set this this standard that just like from just before you even get into like complex political issues, just history they get wrong. So what is the complex? What is the his- historical issue? It's the Southern strategy. For those of you who don't know the Southern strategy, it's essentially this idea that in the '60s and '70s and even '80s there were Southern Democratic conservatives or conservative Southern Democrats who were angry with the Democratic Party because of civil rights movement and civil rights act and it's the the push towards more racial equality and so the Republican Party in order to take in those disaffected voters they engage in the Southern strategy which is essentially stoking their racial fears their racial tensions their racial anxieties to bring in these Southern conservative Democrats into the Republican Party. Now, these people on the right that I've spoken about already, that I mentioned, they deny it. They say it's a myth. We're gonna, I'm going to talk about it and show why I don't think it's a myth and why most historians don't think it's a myth. So first, to start, I'm going to play a clip before I even get to really the arguments. I wanted to show sort of how far to the extreme this they've taken this position by showing that Candace Owens testifying before Congress mentioning that the Southern strategy is a myth. And I'm going to play that, and I'm going to play, right after that, uh, an, int- uh, an interview question someone asked about why she said that. So here it is. And the myth of things um, like the Southern switch and the Southern strategy, which never happened. What's being taught in the education system is that the Republican Party and the Democrat Party effectively switched and it never happened. 
I believe, co Congress, uh, within Congress, one member officially switched his party. Might be two, but, or it was one member. It was not more than that, so it's, it's a complete myth that's built on nothing to make people believe that the Republican Democrats switched, when in fact, Democrats today are the same party that they were uh, throughout the civil rights era. That was why I was referring to, and there is a PragerU video um, that further explicates it that I would advise that everybody watches. Thank you for your time. Thank you. So that's Candace Owens before Congress giving her explanation. The argument about the Congress members switching, we're going to get into that. Don't worry. Um, remember, she says the Southern strategy is a myth. The party's never switched. That's a myth. And what I think really interesting is that she gives this kind of vague uh, response to the question, but she cites the PragerU video and says, oh, this explains it. So now to me, the argument she just gave is just straight out of the PragerU video. So when I, when, when I hear this, and I hear I, what I hear is she is she is so sure that the Southern strategy is a myth, and that the parties never switched, and that he's willing to testify before Congress about this because she seems to have gotten her information from a five-minute PragerU video. And we're going to listen to parts of this PragerU video, and it's it's a flawed five-minute PragerU video. So that just sort of shows the kind of academic integrity that that she has and where she's at. And I think if you want sort of just to further uh, understand Candace Owens like that watch the clip of her talking to Joe Rogan about climate change because we see it's a very similar thing where she is seems to be very easily persuaded by um, right-wing rhetoric. So that's her talking about that. We're going to get into the argument she made first or later. But uh, next, I want to then look at a clip from Charlie Kirk about the party switching. And this is a clip that I really only planned on spending like a minute on. But the more I listen to it, the more falsehoods I realized, and the more ridiculous and just really dumb I I realized it was. So I'm going to play um, this clip in a, n a number of bits. He makes a, num a number of points. I'm going to respond to them um, one at a time. So this is him first talking about the Republican Party and the founding of the Republican Party. They say that essentially the Republicans used to be the Democrats and the Democrats used to be the Republicans. So what are they really saying? Well, that Republicans have always been racist and they're still racist today. That's essentially what they're saying. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Republican Party was founded upon the election of Abraham Lincoln. The Republican Party has always been the party of human freedom, of human rights, and liberation from bondage. Has always been that party. Okay, so the first part of, of this clip about the party switching that's, pr that's problematic is the way he describes the, th the, the party switch, where it is that the Democrats became the Republicans and the Republicans became the Democrats. That's a very oversimplified explanation. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. But so the next thing that's just categorically untrue is he says the Republican Party was founded upon the election of Abraham Lincoln. No, the Republican Party was founded in 1854. Abraham Lincoln was elected in 1860. Lincoln was actually the second Republican candidate to run for president. So it's just a pure uh, just historical inaccuracy that really can't – I don't know how, to ex how you can explain that. You can Google it very easily. Um, so it just when within his when his first historical statement is just a lie, that should at least make the rest of his historical claims a bit dubious. Then the next thing he talks about is that the Republican Party has always been the party of of, lib of liberation from bondage. So this is again a, a distortion of history and cherry picking. What he's referring to is that the Republican Party was founded um, in just in the discussion of should we or should we not expand slavery into the new states. The Republican Party said, no, we shouldn't. So when Charlie Kirk very often highlights this is that 
in its founding, the Republican Party was against slavery. But that's not totally true. The Republican Party, when first founded, was a coalition of different kinds of people. You had some Republicans who were true abolitionists, truly believed in racial equality. But you also had a section of the early Republicans, and some historians argue that it was a majority of the early Republicans. And again, this is cited in the in my sources, check it out later, that the majority or at least a large portion of early Republicans didn't want to expand slavery, not because of racial equality or abolition, but because they were so racist that they did not want black people in white land. They wanted all the land to be free white land, no black people in there at all. So it was not always about liberation, I guess technically liberation, but not because they were not racist or because they believed in equality, but because of racism. And this is another thing that when I was looking at Charlie's, the way he talked about this issue, and there's a lot of examples of how he talks about this issue, I found one tweet, which I think perfectly also encapsulates how he he tries to push this narrative of the Republican Party being perfect and always fighting for racial equality. In 2018, he tweeted, facts, zero Republican senators opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1960. This is misleading because while true, he's focused on the Senate and he's focused on the Civil Rights Act of 1960. So if you look at the Civil Rights Act of 1960, 15 House Republicans did vote against it. But then if you look at the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which is if there's a, a best Civil Rights Act or a better Civil Rights Act, this is at least the main Civil Rights Act that everyone talks about and is seen as the turning point in the Civil Rights Movement. 35 House Republicans opposed it. All Southern representatives, so every Republican from the South opposed it, and six Republicans in the Senate opposed it. So to cherry pick the Civil Rights Act of 1960 and say this is representative of what Republicans were doing at the time is just not true. So now let's look at the next part of this speech he gave. The Democrats um, founded the KKK, sent KK members to Congress, put KK members uh, as governor, so on and so forth. So besides the fact that Charlie seems to have forgotten the third K in KKK, this is an argument that Charlie loves to make, conservatives loves to make, that the Democratic Party founded the KKK. The Democratic Party is the party of the KKK. And that's just an oversimplification. Yes, Democrats founded the KKK, but not all Democrats. It was not representative of the Democratic Party because you also had liberal non-KKK Democrats. And if Charlie wants, really wants to make the argument that the KKK's party affiliation is representative of the party as a whole, then what does that say about the modern Republican Party? Because the KKK is definitely did not vote for Obama, and they definitely are not voting for Biden. But I know who they did vote for. Now, moving on to the last part of Charlie Kirk's video speech here is an argument that when I first heard it, I had to listen to it again because it's so terrible. So check it out. Um, maybe you'll laugh at it like I did. But the consensus that is taught in our schools is that somehow there was this great switch that all of a sudden there was like a handshake done in Congress and they just like switched ideological parties. Completely and totally untrue. So how do I prove that? Let's talk about it logically first and foremost. Why is it that as the South got significantly less racist over time, it got more Republican? How's that possible? It should have been the opposite. It should have been that if the South got less racist, it should have gotten more Democrat, correct? So there you have it. Case closed, logic wins. Um, but for real, let's talk about why that's a ridiculous argument. So first of all, the 
he starts off by making, again, the oversimplified history account of how the party switch happened. But this idea that, oh, if the Republican Party uh, was so racist, then the South should have become more racist as it became Republican. So first of all, I don't know how he's quantifying a place being more or less racist. If he's saying that, well, yet there wasn't any more uh, lynchings and that they weren't, black people were allowed to eat in a restaurant and they couldn't be beaten publicly and they couldn't, uh, you, they could, they could finally use white bathrooms. Like then, yeah, the South became less racist because all those elements of discrimination became illegal. Obviously the South is not going to be Jim Crow South. No one is saying that the party switch means that everyone in the South was as racist and acting as racist as they were in the 1940s. It's a straw man argument. It's a ridiculous, ridiculous argument that says nothing about the actual history and it doesn't actually look at any facts of the history. The entire country became less racist from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. It was not just the South, it's just everywhere. As black people integrated into more elements of society, as just the national discussion of race changed, views did change. No one is saying that they didn't change. It's just that the racial fears and the racism that people still had in the 70s from the 60s was used by the Republican Party to bring them in. So now let's actually start to look at that argument. So I'm going to start now by playing uh, from this 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 PragerU video, and I'm going to point out that this PragerU video has 24 million views on PragerU's website and over 7 million views on YouTube. So this is a video that has reached a lot of people. So let's start. I'm I'm going to play. Uh, a clip for two clips from it. Um, I just sort of cut it around because it's five minutes. We don't have to hear the whole thing. So check it out. Fabricated by left-leaning academic elites and journalists, the story went like this. Republicans couldn't win a national election by appealing to the better nature of the country. They could only win by appealing to the worst. Attributed to Richard Nixon, the media's all-purpose bad guy, this came to be known as the Southern strategy. Myth number one, in order to be competitive in the South, Republicans started to pander to white races in the 1960s. Fact, Republicans actually became competitive in the South as early as 1928 when Republican Herbert Hoover won over 47 percent of the South's popular vote against Democrat Al Smith. In 1952, Republican President Dwight Eisenhower won the southern states of Tennessee, Florida, and Virginia. And in 1956, he picked up Louisiana, Kentucky, and West Virginia, too. And that was after he supported the Supreme Court decision in Brown versus Board of Education that desegregated public schools, and after he sent the 101st Airborne to Little Rock Central High School to enforce integration. Remember that first part for later. Their argument that the Southern strategy, it's made up by the left-leaning academic liberal elites. Nixon didn't do it. It's made up. They came up with it afterwards to, you know, spread this myth that the Republicans were bad. So remember that. Because we're going to see how maybe that's not so true, surprisingly. The next thing I want to focus on is their their myth and argument, and in fact, the fact that it wasn't the Southern strategy that brought Republicans into the Democrat that brought Democrats into the Republican Party. It was happening for decades. The first thing they point to is Herbert Hoover's election in 1928, and it's true. Herbert Hoover did win a part of the South in 1928, but they're cherry picking. Herbert Hoover won the entire country. He won 40 out of 48 states. And the six that he six of the seven that he lost were from the South. So he didn't really break into the South. But to say that, oh, he broke into the South is 
dishonest. If you look at go to 270towin.com and they have presidential election maps of every single election and you see how every election is broken down blue and red, they break down the country. And you see that it was just a landslide win. He won everywhere. Similarly, they point out in 1952. Now, keep in mind, if Herbert Hoover's victory in the South was some sort of indication that the Republicans were making headway in the South, how come a Republican did not win a Southern state for another 24 years? Because it's not until 1952 that any Republican gets another Southern state. And that's Eisenhower 1952. But again, Eisenhower didn't just win a couple Southern states. He won 39 of 48 states. He took over, he took most of the country. So to say he won the South is not the full truth. He won the country. People wanted a Republican. And again, all the states he lost were in the South. Same, 1956. Every state voted Republican, except for seven Southern states. So cherry-picking these elections and saying that, that there's some kind of trend that Republicans were getting into the South as opposed to just Republicans were winning because the Democrats were seen as unpopular is not, re- is not honest. And it's interesting that in 1960, uh, three of the big Southern state wins from Eisenhower, he actually lost. And in 1964, after the civil rights were passed, the Civil Rights Act was passed, Barry Goldwater, who was the Republican, ran as a uh, segregationist, anti-Civil Rights Act candidate for the Republican Party. Uh, the entire country voted Democrat except for six states. And now five of those six states were the, were, the, were the southern states that in no other election voted Republican. So the first time they voted Republican was after the Democrats passed the Civil Rights Act. And then they had a Republican saying, I want to, I'm against that. So I think that's something to keep in mind. And now there's also another little fact that, or argument that they made in this video that Ben Shapiro also makes. So I'm going to play a video, a clip from Ben Shapiro debating uh, Cenk Unger from the Young Turks at Politicon 2017. And I'm going to pinpoint one specific thing they both say. In 1952, Eisenhower did not win a ton of the South. Eisenhower did win, however, seven states in the South in 1956 after he sent federal troops down South. The reason that the, that the Republican Party started to win in the South, it began in the 1950s, not after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, and it was largely due to the movement of industry down South. All right. So the reason I played that clip is because, one, I wanted to just point out how Ben makes the exact same flawed historical argument as Prater U does. Same talking point, just as wrong. But the the big critique I have is that they both make this specific argument that Dwight Eisenhower won in 1956 after, they emphasize after, having sent soldiers down south to force integration in Little Rock. Now, here's an interesting thing that I found. Dwight D. Eisenhower was elected in 1956. Dwight D. Eisenhower sent troops to Little Rock in 1957. I found a study which proves that 1956 comes before 1957. So they make this argument that is just purely false. It is just a lie. Dwight Eisenhower did not win the South after sending in troops. He was elected and then sent in troops. So I'm really fascinated by the fact that this is once, it's a really random flaw or mistake to make. I mean, somebody somebody had to research this and just messed up. I don't know how that happens. 
Um, but it makes me really question how they get the information. Do they really – the fact that they both make the same historical error, is there some kind of like conservative commentator talking point book where they just kind of – one person researched it. If one person makes a mistake, they all get it wrong. I don't know. But it really is fascinating that such a such a, a really basic historical fact they can get it wrong. And again, as with Charlie Kirk, if they get such a basic historical fact wrong, why am I listening to them to make other historical claims? Why are they trustworthy historical sources if they don't know that 1957 comes after 1956 or that they didn't research it themselves clearly to see when the soldier sent to Little Rock happened? That being said, and that little window, I think, into this sort of new right intellectual circle's mind and how they work, let's look at the Southern strategy. Was it real? Was it made up? alternatively by the liberal elites or academic elites. Well, in 1962, as early as 1962, there was a pretty uh, influential political commentator of the 20th century named Joseph Alsop. And he wrote a, uh, an article titled, The Southern Strategy is Segregationist Strategy. And this is a part of the article he wrote. The predicted Republican flirtation with Senator Barry Goldwater's Southern Strategy has already started. The temptation of the Republican gains in the South in the last election is proving to be strong indeed. Hence, the Southern strategy's pros and cons will certainly be the main topic of the Republican National Committee meeting here. Um, here, listen to this. Closed doors are desirable for a discussion of the Southern strategy, at least by Northerners, because it is basically a segregationist strategy. This ugly word is not and will not be used, of course. Powerful admiration for states' rights will be professed instead. But this amounts to the same thing in the present circumstances. The idea long advocated by Senator Goldwater is that most Southern Democrats are deeply disillusioned with their own party and will change party for good if the Republicans make the correct sympathetic noises about state rights. This is now a portman two phrase in which the packed the notion that the Supreme Court has been wrong about desegregation. So there you have it. I mean, as early as 1962, political commentators recognized that the Southern strategy was real and that it was purposefully uh, was purposefully a, looking at white Southerners' racial anxieties or just racist feelings towards desegregation and targeted those and used those to bring them in under the guise of states' rights. But maybe he, this Joseph Alsop, he's part of the liberal elite and he made it up. Maybe. Okay, no, that's if that's the argument they want to make, they can make it. But let's say, let's see, uh, from Nixon's own people, let's see if from the Republican Party, from Nixon's people, if that's true. In 1969, Nixon's White House aide, Lamar Alexander, wrote in a White House memo to the president. So this is official White House memo. Check out Facebook, Twitter. It's in the source sheet. So he wrote this in big title, bold, Southern Strategy. We flat out invited the kind of political battle that ultimately erupted when we named a Democrat-turned-Republican conservative from South Carolina. This confirmed the Southern strategy just at a time when it was being nationally debated. So Nixon's own people say the Southern strategy is real. It's confirmed. We invited it. Next, this is more evidence. Kevin Phillips, who was a Republican strategist and worked in the Nixon campaign, worked for Nixon, said to the, to the New York Times in an interview in 1970, 
that Republicans would be short-sighted if they weakened enforcement of the Voting Rights Act. The more Negroes who register as Democrats in the South, the sooner the Negrophobe whites will quit the Democrats and become Republicans. That's where the votes are. Without that prodding from the blacks, the whites will backslide into their old comfortable arrangement with the local Democrat. So essentially he's saying Republicans shouldn't be out, outright racist or they, or they don't want to take away the Voting Rights Act because if more black people vote, then the white Southerners will have more reason to want to come to the Republican Party. And this is in a New York Times article titled Nixon Southern Strategy. So he was being very open about it. The New York Times was talking about it. People knew the Southern strategy existed. This wasn't some liberal-leaning elite who made this up afterwards. They were talking about it at the time the word Southern strategy existed. They called it that. Again, let's look uh, further. In 1973, Kevin Phillips in a different news article wrote, if the new Washington liberal crowd could tear themselves away from, from Watergate ecstasy and the lionizing of Daniel Ellsberg for a little look-see below the Mason-Dixon line, they might glean a useful political insight. Namely, that the GOP Southern strategy seems to be rolling along and rolling up local victories. So, again, a top Republican strategist who worked for Nixon, he's admitting the Southern strategy exists, and he's saying that it was working. He was seeing local successes. And this is something I also want to point out, that a research project I would love to do, and I think I, I haven't seen it, but it's possible it's been done, is to look at local elections in the South from the 60, from the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, and see how those change. Because we know how Congress changed, and I'm going to get to why it's a Democrat in a bit. But it's interesting. It'd be interesting to see if like city council elections were t- turned Democrat much faster. Little side note. Now, another piece of, of, of evidence that the, Republic, that the uh, Republicans knew about the Southern strategy and that they were doing it. In another New York Times interview in 1970, Clarence Towns, who served as the director of the Minorities Division of the Republican National Committee, said, As I see the Black vote now, there's a total fear of what's called the Southern strategy. Blacks understand that their well-being is being sacrificed to, for, to political gain. There has to be some moral leadership from the president on the race question. And there just hasn't been any. To the blacks, the president has placed the name of the Republican Party in greater darkness than it was under Goldwater. So I think that's just something that is really crazy uh, to think about. I mean, they were just openly talking about it. They admitted it. They knew it was a thing. Next, let's look at what I think if anyone listening has definitely heard of. This is probably the most famous piece of evidence for the Southern strategy. It's a recording that was uncovered a number of years ago from the 19, I think, early 80s uh, of Lee Atwater. Lee Atwater was the chairman of the Republican National Committee, and he was a strategist and advisor to Reagan. So listen to this clip from, uh, I think it's 81. In other words, you start out, and, and now y'all are quoting me. I, this. I you start out in 1954 by saying nigger, nigger, nigger. By 1968, you can't say nigga, that hurts your backfire, so you say stuff like uh, forced busing, states' rights, and all that stuff. And you're getting so abstract now, you're talking about cutting taxes and all of these things you're talking about are totally economic things, and the byproduct of them is blacks get hurt worse than whites. I don't know what to say that needs to be said after that. It's pretty self-explanatory. But for those of you in the back not listening, what the head of the Republican National Committee and advisor to Reagan 
openly saying is that the Republican strategy was you can't, you know, use explicitly racist phrases while campaigning or politicking. So use coded words. You talk about economics and state rights. But what that really means is policies which hurt black people more than whites and help white people and then appeal to white voters. And if that was not explicit enough for you, let's fast forward to 2005. 2005, Ken Melman, who was the chairman of the Republican National Committee, he said at at an NAACP conference, by the 70s and into the 80s and 90s, the Democratic Party solidified its gains in African-American community, and we Republicans did not effectively reach out. Some some Republicans gave up on winning the African-American vote, looking the other way, or trying to benefit politically from racial polarization. I'm here today as the Republican chairman to tell you we were wrong. So there, the head of the Republican Party admitted that Republican leaders did this and apologized for it. And I'm sure he knows a lot more about what the Republican Party's inner workings and what the leaders were doing than Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk or Candace Owens or PragerU, the, the, and especially you know, the woman who speaks in PragerU, who's a university professor. And then if he was not enough testimony, in 2010, the next uh, Republican National Committee chairman, who was black, told a group of students that African-Americans don't have a reason to vote for Republican candidates. We have lost sight of the historic integral link between the party and and African-Americans. And then in in an interview, he said, for the last 40 years, 40 plus years, we've had a Southern strategy that alienated many minority voters by focusing on the white male vote in the South. Well, guess what happened in 1992, folks? Bubba went back home to the Democratic Party and voted for Bill Clinton. And he said that in 2010, for the last 40 plus years, which means that it was going on into the first decade of the 2000s. And again, he apologized for it. So what amazes me is that all of this is very public knowledge. You can find this information very easily. I did. So to say that the Southern strategy was a myth, to say that liberal academic elites came up with it, when the actual, I mean, Republicans in the 70s were openly talking about it. They acknowledged, they acknowledged it was a thing. In the 80s, Lee Atwater was talking about it. And then Republican leaders later admitted they did it and apologized for it. So I don't get why Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and all these people think that they know more about the Republican Party's strategies and inner workings than the people who were in it at the time or the people who are in it now or have been in it more recently. It's, it's beyond me, the, the mental gymnastics they have to go, or just the, the lack of, of, of trying to actually research it themselves and just assuming, okay, this is a myth. And starting from the conclusion that we don't want this to be true, so that now we're going to justify it without actually looking at the facts. Because the facts are that very clearly it happened. It was not a secret. Everyone was talking about it in this, from 62. As early as 62, people were saying it was a thing. So now that we've established that, the Southern strategy did happen. Let's look at if it worked. Because that's a separate question. That's the party switch. If the party switched, that means the that means the Southern strategy worked and that the Republicans brought in the Southern Democrats. So I'm not going to play the next two myths of the uh, PragerU video. And again, Ben Shapiro making the same argument. And then we're going to, again, in similarly to earlier, they're historically, while technically accurate, cherry-picking historical information and not looking at the broader historical picture. So check it out. Myth number two, Southern Democrats angry with the Civil Rights Act of 1964 switched parties. Fact, 
of the 21 Democratic senators who opposed the Civil Rights Act, just one became a Republican. The other 20 continued to be elected as Democrats or were replaced by other Democrats. On average, those 20 seats didn't go Republican for another two and a half decades. Myth number three, since the implementation of the Southern strategy, the Republicans have dominated the South. Fact, Richard Nixon, the man who is often credited with creating the Southern strategy, lost the Deep South in 1968. In contrast, Democrat Jimmy Carter nearly swept the region in 1976, 12 years after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And in 1992, over 28 years later, Democrat Bill Clinton won Georgia, Louisiana, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and West Virginia. And there's a bunch of ways to debunk it, including the fact that the Congress did not switch Republican in the South until 1994. Okay, did it take 30 years for the racists to realize what was going on? 21 senators from the South were Democrats. How many of them became Republicans after the Civil Rights Act? The answer, one. The other 20 stayed Democrats. Starting with myth three, because this is, I think, just a really easy historical argument to make. This idea that, oh, Nixon didn't even win in 68 the South. He didn't win the South in 68. And you had two uh, Democrats who won the South. So clearly the Southern strategy didn't win. It's very dishonest historically. In 1968, it's true, Nixon didn't win the South, but either did the Democrats. George Wallace, who ran as an independent on a segregationist racist uh, platform, he won the South. Not a Democrat but a racist Southerner. Next, uh, looking at the uh, the Carter win. Yes, Carter won the South. Carter was from the South. A candidate winning their region is expected. It's normal. And again, looking in a historical context, as opposed to just cherry picking this one little fact. Remember, Jimmy Carter won in 1976. This is right after Watergate. And after Gerald Ford was president, who was pretty lackluster, no one really cared for that much. So there's a context as to why people didn't vote Republican. And similarly, Bill Clinton was from Arkansas, a Southerner. He won his region. Not a surprise. And again, he was elected after 12 years of Republican presidents. So people wanted a change. People didn't love George H.W. Bush. There's reasons why a Democrat was elected in the South. It's not representative of the fact that, that there were no Republicans in the South. So now let's look then at, at the, the main thing I want to I want to talk about here. And this is the argument that well, there's only only uh, Strom Thurmond is the only there's only one Congress member who switched one senator who switched to the Republican Party. So if there was a Southern strategy, why did all the Congress members not switch? And that's a good argument um, on face value. And I was struck by it when I first heard it. I didn't have an answer. I thought, oh, maybe I have to I have to reevaluate this entire Southern strategy thing that I've heard that's what they want because it, it makes really it makes a lot of sense at face value. But when you research it, you realize how there's so much more to it and how and how there's actual facts that that contradict their story. So let's start with the with the fact that yes, there's a reason why Democratic Congress members from the South did not switch. And I'm gonna get to that in a minute. But I want to point out that the new generation of GOP Congress members from the South, many of them, if not all, or most, not definitely not all, but most started out before Congress, before they were in politics as Democrats, but switched to Republicans. I have a list of 12 here. I'm going to name them really quickly. You have Texas Senator John Tower in the 50s, Representative William C. Craner of Florida, 
Florida Representative Ed Gurney, Louisiana Rep. David Treen, Georgia Representative Iris Fairclaw Blitch, Alabama Representative James Martin, Alabama Representative Bill Dickinson, Georgia Representative Bo Calloway, South Carolina Representative Albert Watson, Mississippi Representative Tad Cochran, Mississippi Representative Trent Lott, and Representative Jesse Holmes of North Carolina. All of them started as Democrats. All of them became Republicans. All of them opposed civil rights in, in, in some way. All of them were uh, segregationists in some way. And an interesting story is, is Trent Lott from Mississippi, who he was the aide to a Democratic congressman, a man named William Comer. Comer was the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee. That's a powerful position. And so if he had switched to the GOP, he would have lost that position. So when he resigned, though, he told Lott, who was a Democrat, and his aide, run as a Republican. And now this is where you get into the actual historical aspects of things. There is a reason why Democratic Congress members did not switch. And that's because many of these senior Democratic Congress members had seniority. They had positions. Now, if they were to switch parties, they would have lost their positions. They would have lost their seniority. Strom Thurmond, who's the one main Democratic Congress member who left, he was able to switch parties because he was guaranteed seniority. But he lost his position, but he was still, he was the, the 12th, I think, most prominent member, the 12th senior member. But if he, that was something that the Republicans gave him as a, as a treat for leaving. If he didn't get that, he would have gone from 12th to 22nd in, in rank. And this is, again, this is not something that left-leaning academic liberals made up. This is, an I have an article here from the 70s or 60s by William F. Buckley Jr. For those who don't know, William F. Buckley Jr. was essentially the Ben Shapiro of the 70s and 80s. He was like one of the first mainstream conservative political thinkers and journalists, and he was a, a key figure in the modern Republican Party and modern conservatism. Until he writes that, and he mentions that, uh, essentially telling a story of Strom Thurmond got this, got got these got the seniority, but not everyone else would necessarily get a chance to. And the only, he was questioning. Will other Democrats be able to follow Thurman and get their seniority positions? So this was not this is not something that liberals made up. The sort of one of the fathers of modern conservatism himself was reporting that this is there's a reason why Thurman left, but not necessarily everyone else is leaving. I then want to move on to uh, part of the sort of kind of historical argument as to why. They, some of them uh, would not leave. So I found an article, it's a historical article that came out of, I think, May this year from the Journal, the journal of Policy History. And this author looked at, in depth at the, at the bold weevils who were essentially, this is an, a group of 50 Southern Democratic Congress members who worked very closely with the Reagan administration. So the author writes about uh, that the Southern Democrats, staying Democrats but working with Republicans, was a very established concept for much of the 20th century. Here's a quote. From the 1930s to the 1960s, Southern Democrats often formed a conservative coalition with Republicans aimed at, at opposing their own increasingly liberal party leadership. The coalition did not unite on every issue, but it was particularly forceful in opposing most legislative proposals that could benefit African-Americans, immigrants, organized labor, and other disadvantaged groups. And it supported benefits for farmers, small businesses, whites, and military contractors. So this, this coalition existed because it was 
it gave some Democrats, they didn't necessarily need to switch because they could still get what they wanted with the Republicans without having to switch. And he, he writes in this, uh, in this piece that much of what Southern conservative Democrats did with the Republicans was to hinder civil rights in black communities. And so, and he writes that while they, they joined Reagan because Reagan was, they shared these kind of shared conservative economic values and principles. And this is kind of where Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk get this wrong. That yes, there was an economic element and there were economics about why the Southern conservative Democrats were working with the Republicans or why Southerners were turning Republican. It was, there were economics. But he says that their economic agenda was largely about getting rid of great society and welfare programs that help minorities the most. It was racially coded anti-welfare rhetoric that had become commonplace in the political vocabulary of white conservatives. And this is exactly what Lee Atwater was saying. These, these talking points, you say state rights and economics, all they become as abstract, but really what it means is policies that hurt African-Americans. So again, why did they not switch though? Well, let's look at a quote. There's a couple quotes here from Louisiana Democrat, Jerry Huckabee, who was a bull weevil. And he said that his district was 97% registered Democrat. Yet on a national level, philosophically, most of the people in my district think more in tune with Republicans. It's just that they've been Democrats since the war between the states. So that's a huge point. Remember, in the Civil War, the South were the, were the Democrats and the North was the Republicans. The North is the invading force and is, is the oppressor. And we can't take this lightly. Because still in 2020, in this summer, we're, we still see how much of an impact the Civil War had on the Southern consciousness. How, how dearly they still hold the Civil War. We've seen it when discussions of Confederate flags, statues, army bases, that it really affected them. So it, it would take a lot to get Southern Democrats to vote Republican. Republicans were, even in the, still in the 60s and 70s, the same occupying oppressive power that they were in the 1860s. So there's, it, it, take, it would take a long time for that mindset to change. And what these conservative Southern Democrats who worked with Republicans did was kind of normalize the Republicans and give Southern Democrats a way to see that, oh, we actually agree with them. And if our representatives are working with them, we can vote for them eventually. There were some other, uh, the article gives some other reasons why they stayed. In, in interviews, uh, Demo- uh, Ed Jenkins, who was, a, who was a Congress member, said he wanted to stay within the party and fight it out. Marvin Leith argued that it's important that the Democratic Party have a conservative wing to counterbalance the ultra-liberal wing. Congress member Doug Bar- Barnard claimed he would never be tempted to switch because I'd lose my seniority and my subcommittee chairmanship. So there you go, that, that argument again. So... What you see there is that there are just there are explanations as to why Democratic Congress members didn't switch, and that in fact they were more in line with the Republicans, and race was a deciding factor in the way things worked, and how and how Southerners uh, align themselves with with Republicans. I want to just point out a quick inter- uh, article I found titled from the '70s, titled "Southern Republican Salons Talk as the Dixiecrats Did." For those who don't know, the Dixiecrats were the Democrats who left the party and started their own party because of civil rights issues. And essentially, the article talks about how listening to 
the new Republicans, the new GOP from the South who were once Democrats, it just sounds like the, Dixie, like the Dixiecrats talking about how civil rights are bad and evil. And one more point on this that I want to make and understanding why this, this focusing on these Congress members in Congress at this time is not an accurate representation of understanding the mainstream Southern white person. To do that, to understand the attitudes and the trends and the way people's attitudes were shifting, look at the voters. See if actual voters were moving more towards the Republican Party based on race. Luckily, researchers have done that. A 2000 study uh, analyzed voter survey data from 1958 to 2012. It found that in the South, pre-1960s, Republican voters were virtually non-existent. But as Republicanism started to spread, they were able to sort of measure which types of voters were going where, and they found that it was conservative Democrats who slowly but surely began to vote for the Republican Party, while the liberals of the Democratic Party continued voting Democrat. Let's see here. Okay, following the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the party switch of Senator Thurmond, enough Southerners voted in Republican primaries to estimate their median ideology with better precision. During the 60s, Republican primary electorates in the South were slightly more conservative than Democratic primary electorates, suggesting that conservatives were the first to defect from the Democratic Party. Over the course of the 60s and 70s, those participating in Democratic primaries in the South became more liberal, while Republican Southern primary voters remained conservative. Once a Republican primary emerged in the South that was dominated by conservatives, a clear incentive emerged for conservative candidates to run in Republican primaries. So what they make clear here is that it was the conservative whites of the South who left the Democratic Party and started voting Republican. And it was after the Civil Rights Act that this started happening in, in uh, quantifiable numbers where we actually started to see data on it. And this is where the right is wrong in how they explain the party switch. They say, oh, the Democrats became the Republicans and the Republicans became Democrats. There was the handshake in Congress. But no, that's an oversimplification, as much of what they say is an oversimplification. The way it worked, it wasn't that the, the Democrats became Republicans and the Republicans became Democrats. That's applying modern partisanship on the past. Nowadays, if you're liberal and on the left, you're Democrat. And if you're conservative, you're Republican. But that's a modern invention. Before the 60s and 70s, before this happened, the parties had broad swaths of people. So you'd have the Democratic Party who had conservatives, and progressives. You have a Democratic Party that has FDR and Strom Thurmond. You could have a Republican Party that had liberals like Nelson Rockefeller, who was the governor of New York and a, and a liberal Republican. And you can have people like Reagan and Nixon and Barry Goldwater. And much of this was, so it was not, party was not the, necessarily the defining factor into whether or not you'd be right or left. So since the party switched is not, Accurate. It's not that they, they switch platforms, but it means that the conservatives from the from the Democratic Party went to the Republican Party. That shifted the Republican Party right. With all the conservatives leaving the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party becomes more left. And so all the liberals of the Republican Party move to the Democratic Party, which is a lot more nuanced and more complex than the parties shook hands in Congress and switched. And any historian is going to explain it like this. So if they are actually addressing the historians they would address that narrative, not, well, the party switched. And I hope I'm not getting too uh, complicated into details here. So I'm going to point out 
just one more study, uh, fairly recent from 2016, that they sought to these researchers from Princeton sought to answer whether the the drive from of Southerners from Democrat Party to Republican Party was dr- driven by economics, as Ben Shapiro states, or racial issues. So they looked at a number of factors. They looked at news coverage and voter and a lot of voter survey data from a number of different surveys. And they found uh, specifically data uh, surveys regarding race dating back to the 40s and 50s. So here is their conclusion. Nearly all of the Democratic Party's losses in the South from 1958 to 1980 can be explained by white voters' racially conservative views. We find almost no role for income growth among white voters or non-race-related policy preferences in explaining why white Southern voters left the party. So when Ben and co. talk about the 50s and how the shift started then, the study found that there was a correlation between President Truman dedicating the, the Democratic Party to, to fighting civil, for civil rights and the Southern voter in the South voting Republican. So again, even there, it wasn't that there was economic development when he when Ben points to, oh, Eisenhower in the 50s. It was the party, the Democratic Party started fighting for civil rights. And so it wasn't economic. It means that Southerners were not making enough money. Incomes were not growing enough to justify the extent to which they left the party. They even, they give a number. They say voters who left the party would have had to experience a 600% increase in household income over a two-year period to account for the degree to which they left the party. And again, there's no, they found it was no other non-racial policy explained it. It was only race. So, oh, and just one last thing. It was in 1963 when JFK first started uh, enacting civil rights legislation or trying to. And then 1964 when uh, Lyndon Johnson actually did it, where the real shift started, where they found in the data. So what do we do with all this? Why does it matter? I first want to, again, point out how much information exists to support and prove that the Southern strategy existed, was real, and that the parties did switch. Just to, to summarize, you had plenty of Republican leaders who had acknowledged the Southern strategy. The new generation of, this, in this, of the 70s of Republican uh, Congress members were originally Democrats. Voter data suggests that, that Southerners were switching, were becoming more conservative and switching to the Republican Party. And as to why Democratic senators and Congress members didn't, uh, didn't switch, because they would have lost their power and they could accomplish a lot as Democrats working with Republicans on issues that specifically helped white people. And again, it took a while for uh, Southern Democrats to vote Republican because of the effect the Civil War had on the Southern consciousness. The idea of voting Republican was imp- seemed impossible. It would have been impossible in 1964. But these things take time. Historical trends happen over a long period of time. It's a straw man argument for Ben Shapiro or Charlie Kirk to say, in 1964, the shift happened overnight. No one is saying that. Things, ha- things in history take decades to happen. So why? What is the, what is the point of, of denying, again, all these facts? And this is what I found last week also. That when there's so much data that supports this narrative, why do they deny it? And I actually do think I have an answer here. And I think it's pretty simple because in their minds, if the Southern strategy is real and it worked, then that means Southern Democrats 
we're racist and we're brought into the party on racism. And that means that in their minds delegitimizes the Republican Party. And so that means they have to from and they can't allow that. That's too much criticism for the Republican Party. So they have to start from that conclusion and then prove why it's wrong and find pieces of information to show why it's wrong. But I don't think that has to be the case. I get why they do it, but I think it's because they lack a certain level of introspection. The fact that the Republican Party stoked racial tensions and racial fears of white Southerners does not have to delegitimize the Republican Party or conservatives. If Ben Shapiro and his crew, if they had just a little bit of introspection and thought, okay, we did this, we were wrong, then what does that mean? What does it mean to say that the Democrat, that the Republican Party engaged in the Southern strategy? How do you, what are the implications of that? And this is what, getting back to what I said in the beginning, why it matters and why there are practical implications to the Southern strategy. First, you just have whatever the cultural, social and cultural implications are that if Republican politicians purposefully ignited racial rivalries, what did that do to the Southern culture and how did, how did that affect things? You have to look into that and see, okay, how do, if the Republican Party, how do you fix that? What, what, what can they do to right that wrong? But then you also have, and if I were a conservative, I would want to acknowledge the Southern strategy because it gives you room for improvement. To say that because you have root, that there were racists in the 70s and 80s and 60s is not a crazy thing. They act as if it's so crazy to say that the Republicans were racist. But they were so. But ten years before, they were happily enforcing Jim Crow and beating black people for wanting to eat in a, in a restaurant. So it's not so insane to say, look, these people still had racial prejudices at the very least, and as we see, they were taken advantage of because, or not taken advantage of, the Republican Party capitalized on that. So once you acknowledge that, you can say, okay, if Republican policies, if states' rights, economics, and states' rights, the political philosophy had a racist had racist root and the South has racist roots, what are the economic implications of that? If economics, if economic policy was created to hurt black people, how does that affect the current black communities? Okay, then you're getting into a situation where you can try and right some wrongs and see, okay, where does this legacy of racism still exist in the party? Or just in economics in general. And I don't get why they don't acknowledge this. I think I think they believe that if if they acknowledge the racist roots of the Republican Party, that somehow delegitimizes it. But I would say that it doesn't delegitimize the Republican Party any more than America is delegitimized by its racist roots. And just like with America, we have to look at how do our racist roots, how does the South racist roots affect modern America and modern black communities? So just to finish off right there, Ben. Charlie, if you're listening, think about it a little bit. You're, it doesn't make Republicans bad to acknowledge the Southern strategy happened. You don't ha- it doesn't delegitimize you. I mean, I, I think it's definitely bad that they did it, and it's evil that they did it. And yes, it's evil that Republicans fell for it or Democrats in the South fell for it. But it happened, and it's a reality. So what are you going to do about it? And with that... I'm going to finish. Thank you for listening. I hope I didn't lose you. This was a bit more very history driven. Just a couple things. Uh, Thanks for listening. 
follow us on Facebook and Twitter, please. I want to try and get some followers. Um, if you like the show, subscribe on whatever you're listening on, Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Get more episodes. Trying to do this weekly. Trying to get some guests soon. If you have a friend who you think would enjoy this, whether it's because they share the political opinions of you and me, or maybe they are fans of Ben Shapiro and Charlie Kirk and this whole crew, and you want to hear some criticisms and you think it might change their minds, please do so. I'd love to get to get that. If you have any good reactions, tweet at me. If you have any clips that you want me to uh, respond to or look at any conservative arguments that you want to be sort of me to research in depth and do an episode about, I'll do it. Tweet at me. Facebook me. Yeah. Thank you so much. Have a nice week. Thank you.